Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Grok Science Show, your weekly look at the latest in science and technology. I'm your host, Samantha Thomas, and today I'm talking with theoretical physicist and Nobel laureate Frank Wilczek about whether the universe embodies beautiful ideas. So welcome to the show, Dr. Wilczek. Uh, we're very happy to have you here today. Um, to discuss your upcoming book, which is called A Beautiful Question, which you describe as a meditation on the question of whether the world embodies beautiful ideas. Yes. So I think I'd like to start by just how do you begin answering a question like that? I mean, where do you, where do you even look first? Well, it has two sides. It's on the one hand, what the world is, and on the other hand, what beauty is. And then you see if they match. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, that's, I mean, that's the way I wound up analyzing it. This was, I mean, the, the origin of this was not, was not uh, a free imagination. I, I was asked by the uh, people of Darwin College in Cambridge, England, to lecture, to give a lecture about quantum beauty, and I very nearly turned it down out of hand because it seems like such an outlandish subject. <laughs> but then I, you know, I like Cambridge very much. I like visiting there, <laughs> and uh, it seemed like well, so I so I didn't dismiss it out of hand. I thought about it, and it resonated. I started to think, what what could this possibly mean? <laughs> And it grew on me, and uh, it made me think about, you know, go back and think about why I got into this business in the first place, and gave me a chance to get in contact with uh, ideas about philosophy and art and the way people hoped the world might work, and compare that to the way we're discovering the world actually works. Uh, so I'm sure you spend a lot of time kind of defining beauty, because people will get kind of up in arms about how it's subjective. And well, okay. I mean, it's just, I, again, it's similar to, I, I mean, the way I intend it is uh, similar to the way we use a word like chaos mm. in, in science. Okay, so there's a general notion of chaos that uh, has the connotations of disorder and strangeness and formlessness and so on. Uh, so it's very, and is kind of woolly, you might say subjective, hmm. at the edges, what, what's chaotic and what's not. Uh, and that, ins that we recognize something like that in, in science. Certain behaviors are strange and superficially formless, but in, in, uh, where you might have expected order, instead you get something not ordered. Uh, so we borrow that name, chaos, and it, it, it is an aspect of the common usage of chaos, but then it becomes, uh, as we explore its scientific, the, the, the science of, of the idea that inspired this borrowing of the word, uh, we, we refine our use. You know, we get, it becomes more narrow, more objective. And yet retains the spirit of uh, of, the, of the of the original. So that that's that's for me uh, the exploration of beauty is partly 
understanding what beauty is in as it appears in the the way nature works. So it's not all forms of beauty, of course, that uh, appear in the fundamental laws of nature. Uh, the beauty of the human body, not so much. <laughs> uh, for instance, the beauty of landscapes, not so much. But beauty in the sense of symmetry, in the sense of uh, an abundance of effects from very simple building blocks like mosaics or uh, using interesting forms and shapes to make distorted and yet uh, true images of things. Uh, those, are th those are concepts that we find very profoundly re uh, reflected and embodied in our best understanding of the basic way nature works. So would you, would you say that um, the kinds of beauty that you're talking about are maybe what would be beautiful from nature's perspective, like personified nature's perspective? Yeah, I think all different, different artists have different tastes. And uh, nature has a very specific taste, if you like, if you want to think of nature as an artist, which I think is a pretty way to think about it. <laughs> In a, and, and a not misleading way of, of portraying uh, important aspects of what we find and certainly a way that I've used creatively to try to guess nature's next moves uh, <laughs> that, uh, that you have to realize that it's this very particular taste. And yeah, so uh, as with all artists, to appreciate what they're doing, you have to sort of enter into their spirit. <laughs> Yeah, you say there are kinds of beauty that nature is obsessed with, which yes. <laughs> I just love that quote. Would you say, um, can you just maybe say it more concisely, what are those hallmarks of beauty that, that nature repeatedly tries to um, hit? So, so I'd say that, uh, okay, three for me really have stood out as I've made this study. Uh, one is symmetry. Mm -hmm. Another is economy of means, which is using just a few simple rules to do lots of things. And the other is uh, sort of the, the flip side of that is exuberance, the possibility of getting uh, or the, the possibility and the reality of getting uh, uh, wildly various effects and richness of structure from just having many building blocks that are identical, like Lego bricks, and putting them together in, in uh, very imaginative ways. <laughs> so symmetry, ex economy of means, and exuberance. Those, those I think, are the calling cards of nature's style. <laughs> so you said that your kind of realization of this has helped you predict nature's next moves. Would you say that you've been guided in your own scientific work by um, searching for beauty? Or do you Absolutely. think that beautiful answers are more often correct? Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's worked beautifully for me. Uh, the, the, um, you know, my earliest work was figuring out what the equations for the strong interaction are. 
so-called. And you know, the strong interaction has to do with the, the ways quarks interact. It's very hidden, <laughs> uh, very difficult to get information on. So to get the equations, it really wasn't possible to uh, just do a, do a lot of do the experiments you would want to do to see how things basically work at shorter and shorter distances and so uh, it was necessary to guess, make guesses and sort of check them out because the, 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 uh, the means to test them are not as complete as, as when you're dealing with macroscopic objects that you can check easily in all ways that you could imagine. Uh, so you have to, the, the procedure is different. You have to guess and then check enough that you can, you can get confidence that the guess was right or not. Uh, and how do you guess in this really strange, unfamiliar realm? Uh, well, one strategy is just hope this to hope it help. It'll be beautiful. And, uh, maybe nature would cooperate and, that's that's certainly what happened in the theory of the strong interaction. We guessed equations that are have an ex, are sort of dictated by symmetry. They're, they're like the circles among equations, <laughs> and the, they turn out to uh, they turn out to be the correct equations after you know, a lot of uh, careful deduction of their consequences and experimental checking. Uh, Everybody agrees and get Nobel Prizes for it, so that, uh, that those are the correct equations. And you, uh, the, the, uh, and okay, so that, that is a big success story. I have in, in my later work at, at other success stories, but I think what's most interesting is I'm hoping, I'm hoping, <laughs> I, I have guesses on the table <laughs> based on very much based on, on hoping that mm. things will be beautiful that are still uh, where the jury is still out. You know, uh, one is called axions, which could very well be the dark matter in the universe. And if they exist, would certainly beautify the equations we use to describe the world. And another is called supersymmetry, which would help us to unify the different interactions. And again, make things more symmetrical. So that's what I've used to make guesses that uh, still have a chance of being right and that I've gotten people interested and energized. <laughs> I guess I'm hearing that it's, it might be the case that maybe scientists don't feel quite satisfied when the answer they find isn't as beautiful as it could be and they're kind of that their, their work isn't quite done. Yeah, it's annoying. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like uh, the princess and the pea or a bird, the saddle. You yeah. Know, you, I mean, I, I see it as my job, one, a part of my job to uh, look for weak points in our understanding. What are the weak points? Well, if you have theories that agree with all available data uh, and you still want to look for weak points to, to do better, mm -hmm then you have to say, well, the description isn't as pretty as it could be. Right? You have to look for more theoretical uh, criteria than is really aesthetic criteria. 
And how, how are these, so you've already talked about this a little bit, but how are these questions approached by philosophers before we were really, before we really started describing the universe in mathematical, at least accurate mathematical terms? Well, in many ways, most of which in retrospect, don't fit into this sure. worldview, yeah. but but there's a thread which is the thread I uh, follow in the book of thinkers going back to Pythagoras. And there are other threads I don't follow in in Indian and Chinese philosophy, which have some uh, commonalities. I don't know those as well, but uh, the a thread of people, it's a thin thread, <laughs> most <laughs> but it runs through a philosophy uh, that had concepts along these lines. They were hoping, you know, I, I mentioned Plato and Pythagoras, they hoped that uh, the world would be constructed in an artistic way, you know, mm -hmm. and as, as an embodiment of beautiful ideas. Uh, and the kind of beauty they had in mind was very much the kind of mathematical beauty of symmetry and, and uh, harmony that, that we actually do find embodied uh, in ways they couldn't have imagined, much richer ways, but in the same spirit. And uh, people, I think, the later, well, the later people I pick up on, uh, uh, the artists of the Renaissance, who tries to do justice to how the world actually is, and people like Galileo and Newton, they didn't have so much preconceptions about what they were going to find, but I think they were hoping to find uh, that the world, which they considered uh, either uh, God itself or certainly the way God expressed himself, herself, itself, whatever, uh, that, that, that would be the thing, that would be the gateway to understanding, um, the, uh, the ideal, the deepest aspects of reality. So, so, so the world, uh, how should I say, Plato, had the idea that the world is an imperfect copy of some ideal reality. I think uh, scientists in the spirit of Galileo and Newton and Maxwell thought of it as not different, <laughs> but as a way of understanding uh, the ideal, that in a different way, I mean, as, the, as our gateway into understanding the ideal, you know, not, not an imperfect copy, but the actual thing, if we understood it properly. <laughs> it's interesting that you use the word hope so much when you're describing um, what ancient philosophers yes. and, and modern mathematicians are doing. <laughs> Does it say anything about us that we are wondering if we should ascribe an aesthetic motivation <laughs> to nature? I mean, how? yeah, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's very important in the scientific method, which I don't propose to abandon, sure. <laughs> that, uh, that uh, we be prepared for uh, any answer 
you know, in principle. <laughs> and our, we might make a guess that turns out to be wrong about uh, whether the world is beautiful or whether the world is beautiful in the particular way that we anticipate. Uh, you know, people, well, uh, an outstanding example along these lines is Kepler had a wonderful model of the solar system. Uh, the, the different spacing between the planets based on them moving around on celestial spheres, uh, the perfect shape moving at constant speeds or the perfect kind of motion and the different spheres for the different that carried along the different planets would be inscribed and circumscribed around platonic solids, the most ideal solids. It's a wonderful picture and makes beautiful models that, that uh, you can construct. Nate and Kepler did construct one for his patron. Uh, and, uh, it, but it's just entirely wrong. You know, and and, and uh, Kepler himself discovered that, although he didn't really internalize it. I, yes, uh, the the um, so we have to be prepared for the the idea that maybe our concept of beauty is not the right one, or, or even that uh, the whole idea that beauty is what drives the world is, is not right. That. that uh, there are other things involved. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they would be. That's part of the problem. <laughs> um, that's your next book. So I'm kind of trying to get you to talk about your idea of promotion of learning um, might be the evolutionary cause of our, our sense of beauty or our perception yes. of it or our appreciation well, of it. I think it's, again, beauty is a... Is a uh, cloudy concept yeah, in yeah. conversations. Uh, but I think it's very plausible that uh, many things, if not all things that are called beautiful are things that uh, we find rewarding to experience yeah. you know, somehow in one way or another. So that could be associated with uh, nature's encouraging us to be fruitful and multiply. That's one form of beauty, certainly. Uh, it could be ways of, uh, of finding uh, environments that are likely to be favorable, landscapes and things like that. Uh, and those are all things that we find rewarding, and it's very plausible that that's because they evolution... Uh, is evolution favors <laughs> uh, uh, those experiences. But another uh, aspect and of what nature, what uh, evolution would favor is that uh, is more, more uh, primitive in some sense, more basic, is that uh, we have a difficult time understanding the world so there's a big world out there that's three-dimensional, that sure. extends for vast distances. And somehow uh, we gather signals through our little eyeballs and irises projected on a two-dimensional screen in the back of our eyes and have to reconstruct 
the world, of a world of three-dimensional objects at different distances from that very partial information. So there's a lot of guesswork involved. It's as well as sophisticated projective geometry that we all do subconsciously, but we're very good at it. And our machinery to do that is not all inborn. So, I mean, some of it is. I mean, some capabilities are, but potentials, if you like, they are inborn, but they need to be tuned up by experience with the world. Uh, so we have to experience the world and interact with it to learn the tricks that are necessary to do these very useful tasks of organizing experience. Is it safe to say, then, that your answer is yes? The universe does embody beautiful ideas. Yes. <laughs> well, absolutely. No, and I think, I, in fact, I proved it experimentally, I think, then. <laughs> because I was very pleased when I uh, sort of encapsulated the way the world works. Of mm -hmm. course, it's vastly oversimplified and distilled in these ideas of symmetry, exuberance, and uh, uh, economy of means. Mm -hmm. And then you can go back and ask, okay, people, once, once people didn't know about quantum physics and all, all these discoveries we made about how the fundamental ways the world works, uh, did they anticipate those ideas and, and, and put them into their highest aspirational artworks? And you can look and you find that in... Uh, in mosques, for instance, uh, where you have this exuberant coloration and symmetry and use of geometric form, those are absolutely embodiments of the same principles that we find uh, working in the world. So you can go there, or in the case of the book, you can take a picture and show <laughs> that this is what people find beautiful, or at least one thing that people find beautiful, and by golly, it matches uh, what we find at the heart of the, heart of the world, the most the, the fundamental description of how things work. I like that you caveated it by saying you're also inspired by the beauty that might be, right? We haven't, yeah. We've seen enough to answer that, yes, the world does yes. embody beautiful ideas, but but we're probably not finished, which kind of comes back to our discussion of... Yeah, I mean, yeah. right. And art doesn't stop <laughs> after, uh, after Da Vinci and Michelangelo do their work or, or Picasso or any, you know, it goes, it's, uh, there's, um, there's, there's always the possibility of creativity and more. Mm -hmm. uh, now, finding new fundamental laws, that... That could come to an end. We could find the fundamental laws that tie everything up, but that wouldn't bring creative activity in science or physics to an end. It would just, mean that it would just change the nature of it. We, you know, we, would, we would know all the notes that the piano can play, and then we could move on to play, making chords and, and songs. And, and. You thought a lot and written a lot about the standard model, which I know you don't love that term, but um, is that beautiful enough to be considered complete, complete at this point? 
No, no, no. It, it has a lot of loose ends, a lot of loose ends. And uh, it, it can be made more beautiful. Axions would make it more beautiful. Supersymmetry would make it more beautiful. Uh, whatever the dark matter is, which may have to do with those things, uh, understanding what it is and how it would fit in, well, beautiful or not, we, it's there. We, mm -hmm. have to, we have to understand how it fits in. Uh, gravity, although it you know, generally can, can be accommodated within the, uh, the core theory or standard model very nicely, uh, is kind of, how should I say, is kind of just another moving part. It's not organically yeah. connected to the others. So, so there's plenty of room for improvement. So even though it's, it's quite beautiful already and embodies fantastic amounts of symmetry, uh, power and economy of means, all these, uh, if you try to judge it by the highest standards, could it be more beautiful? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So for those listening, if you want to know more about any of these topics we've been discussing, take a look at um, the book. It's called A Beautiful Question, and uh, it's a really good read. Um, I actually found it kind of fun, um, quite funny at times. Um, and, <laughs> and you'll probably actually learn some physics without even realizing it's happening to you. Right. You see lots of interesting pictures, too. Beautiful <laughs> pictures. Is there any kind of last thing you want to say, or? I, I think we've touched on uh, most of the major themes. I, well, one thing we didn't discuss, which is quite interesting, it's a little bit tangential, but I think extremely interesting, is uh, I've used in the book very much as a model and a, well, the, a, a and a metaphor, but it's more than a metaphor, the, our experience with color vision. Yeah. So I think that's, I, I was very pleased that I was able to, to uh, express these, some of the very unfamiliar concepts like extra dimensions and uh, 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 the charges of the properties in the strong interior property spaces that govern how the core theories or standard not works in in visual terms. Is there an easy way that you could kind of, or could you kind of simplify this idea of how you would use color to understand some of these extra dimensions or 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 um, yeah. physics oh, concepts that are well, hard to? Okay, let me, let me give you my riff, and then you can decide if it's sure. <laughs> simple. Okay, suppose you're a computer, or suppose you want to instruct a computer uh, what to show. So you have to tell it at every time and at every position on the screen what to output. And what, it want, what, it, what you need to tell in its output is three things. You have to tell it the amount of red to output, the intensity of red, in each pixel, the, the, uh, the intensity of green and the intensity of blue. So three numbers. That, it turns out that red, green, and blue are enough to, uh, by mixing them with different intensities, to make any perceived color. And that's why computers do it this way. 
so, okay, so the instruction contains three things. The, I, I'm sorry, six things. <laughs> contains T, the time, X and Y, the position on the screen, and R, G, and B, the intensities of those three colors. So those are six numbers. Now, as far as the computer is concerned, as far as the program is concerned, they all look pretty much the same. You, know, you have an array of six things. Uh, we call one of them time and two of them space and three of them colors, but really they are six dimensions. <laughs> so that's a very, so what I'd like to say is if you want to know what it would be like to experience extra dimensions, just you're looking at it. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it, it's maybe just going one step further from seeing time as just time and space as, as um, different dimensions of maybe the same thing. Or, yes. Uh, but it's yeah, that, that idea going one step further. Yes. Yeah. Let's go to, to any kind of property, but especially the properties that appear in our fundamental description of nature, which are electric charge and the, the two. So that's a one-dimensional space mm -hmm. on top of ordinary space. The photon, when photons look at the world, they want to know what they need to know, what they care about, is uh, the density of electric charge at every place in space and time. So they see a one-dimensional property space, if you like. They see one extra dimension. They see the world in monochrome. If you ask the same thing about the carriers of the weak force, they see two dimensions. And if you ask about the carriers of the strong force, the colored gluons, so they see three dimensions, just like us. <laughs> so, but, but they very much experience a world of extra dimensions. And that concept is really uh, the basis of constructing successful theories of those, interact of those forces. That's, that's, what, that's the way we do it. I think I'm, I'm on to, to some of the secrets of Nobel Prize winning <laughs> physicists, which are the, you think about what photons care about. And in your book, you ask what electrons want or like what motivates yes. nature. Well, I try to use all parts of my, yeah, I think it's part of, I, I really think it's part of trying to use all parts of your brain. So yeah. a big part of our brain is visual. Another big part of our brain is social. Yes. So if you can start to think about <laughs> the different players in the equations or the different objects as beings that have their own wants and needs and preferences, uh, well, it's easy to carry that too far, but it's, 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 also, it's a fun way to think about and, and can be creative. Again, that was Dr. Frank Wilczek, and his new book is called A Beautiful Question. Thanks so much for joining us for the show today. For more from us, tune in next week or find us on Facebook or Twitter. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon. Go enjoy the symmetry, economy, and exuberance. And as always, keep on grokking.